0: Welcome everybody to the CNS Journal Club podcast. I'm Megan Still, a resident from the University of Florida, and I'll be moderating our discussion. Today we'll be talking about how to predict um, readmissions after pituitary adenoma resection as determined by machine learning analysis. We'll start out by introducing our authors and guest faculty, and then we'll move on to discussing the paper. Our authors today come from the University of Utah. Uh, Would you guys mind introducing yourselves? We'll start with uh, Dr. Carsey.
1: Thanks, Megan. And thanks again, everyone in the CNS for the invitation all, um, to present our paper as a CNS podcast. My, my name is Michael Carsey. I'm an assistant professor of neuro
2: school-based at the University of Utah. And I'd like to uh, echo Dr. Carsey's sentiment. Thank you for having us here today. My name is Brendan Crabb. I'm a medical student at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Uh, we'll be starting my fourth year here in about a month.
0: Excellent, and our guest faculty today is um, also coming from the University of Florida. Uh, Dr. Roper, would you mind giving us a brief introduction?
3: Hi, I'm Steve Roper, I'm a professor from neurosurgery, uh, professor of neurosurgery at University of Florida, and I kind of subspecialize in pituitary tumors and epilepsy surgery.
0: Excellent, thanks everybody for joining us today. Um, We'll go ahead and get started with a brief outline of the paper. Um, Dr. Carsey, can you give us uh, your overview?
1: Absolutely. So uh, this is a paper that we did um, primarily at the University of Utah, but also in collaboration with Iowa State. And it was um, aimed at reviewing the um, sort of predicting readmission rate after pituitary adenoma surgery. And as many of your uh, authors and listeners um, know, uh, unplanned readmission after transvenonal pituitary adenoma surgery can be seen in up to about 10% of patients. And it's very frustrating for surgeons as a lot of times these patients can't be well predicted and um, just it, it pu- puts a wrench in, in, in the uh, monkey works for, for managing these patients. And so what we did was evaluate uh, using a machine learning algorithm, different variables and um, algorithms to try to predict patients that would uh, be at high risk for readmission. And in order to do so, we started by using the data from the NISQIP database from 2006 to 2011. This involved 17, um 1,775 patients And uh, these were broken up into two different groups, a training set of about 1,400 patients and a validation set. And then we uh, evaluated um, eight different machine learning algorithms using this data, uh, also evaluated which parameters, which different variables um, correlated the best with uh, predicting uh, 30-day readmission. And then we validated that entire model using external data. This was from the University of Utah as well as from Ohio State. So we had 485 patients from the University of Utah and 297 patients from Ohio State. So it was, a, it was a nice way of taking a theoretical machine learning algorithm and really applying it towards real world data where we knew the outcomes and the nuances of those patients. The different machine learning algorithms were... Um, run using a scikit uh, learning machine um, Python library. And we also added the xjboost algorithm. There are eight total algorithms that were evaluated. The way that these were incorporated, um, well, there's there, in our methods, we sort of described the step by step, but we optimized the hyperparameters using uh, hyperop. Uh, and then also we used k fold cross validation, sort of. Um, different ways of optimizing these different algorithms and then also internally validating them as we we're trying to uh, see which, uh, which specific algorithm was, was uh, most predictive. We measured areas under the curve. We also did a, a secondary analysis where we specifically looked at what were the uh, different variables which were the most predictive. And this could help narrow down the machine learning algorithms. Hopefully in the course of this podcast, we'll kind of discuss a little bit of You know, machine learning is not a magic black box that kind of gives you random insights. It really does require clinical um, insights to know which specific variables are important. What is the study question you're trying to answer? And and so those are really important things. Um, We uh, validated the different uh, parameters that we uh, obtained, and then those are used to optimize the different um, machine learning uh, classifiers. And then uh, once those were completed and we had our different algorithms, we applied them uh, towards a risk stratification model. Basically we used two um, uh, different, actually three different uh, classifiers to help create a low risk, medium risk, and high risk category for readmission. And then internally validated that inf- information using the real world data. So we sort of knew which patients were gonna pre- be predicting as high risk. And then we went ahead and validated those against real world, da- real world data. So, if you end up looking at our uh, different um, patient groups, you you basically see that a lot of the clinical variables were very similar—similar median ages, similar readmission rates. From our training set of data, we had a readmission rate about seven point eight percent. From our real-world external data, we had a readmission rate about six point three percent. And one thing to note from the results is that if you were to take any kind of regular statistical methodology, univariate analysis, logistic regression analysis, it would have not been able to predict very well which one of these patients were readmitted. And we'll hopefully talk a little about why there's some limitations in in traditional statistics. And with our machine learning algorithms, we found that the XJ boost classifier really gave us the best area under the curve. Of about 0.76 for predicting uh, readmission rate the other um, parameters that we evaluated uh, as well such as support vector machine and logistic regression also gave us um, similar uh, areas under the curve but were just a little bit um, uh, less accurate Um, but those were uh, similarly accurate for predicting readmission on our external data as well so we created the model validated it and then also Uh, applied it towards external data, again showing each time that the algorithm was highly predictive of uh, predicting readmission. Uh, The factors we found were the most important for uh, predicting readmission were preoperative sodium, return to the OR, and total operation length of time. these are variables that were available in NISQIP as well as easily uh, obtainable when we did our chart reviews and sort of found our external data. We ended up uh, identifying uh, out of our um, total group of external patients, uh, 33 um, high-risk patients, which is about 33, uh, um, and amongst those 33 high-risk patients, 11 were admitted, so 33% of them were admitted in the high-risk group. This gave us a risk ratio of 12. 202 medium-risk patients with 11% readmission, and then 547 low risk patients with a 3% readmission. So when we took the algorithm and we're applying it towards these different low, medium, high risk categories, we overall showed an accuracy of about 92% on predicting which patient could be readmitted. And I think that that speaks to some of the power of the machine learning algorithms and what they can do that our traditional statistics can't do. in summary, sort of the, the study helped to identify algorithms that could predict readmission, it helped identify factors, different patient variables that were the most predictive, which were namely preoperative sodium, return to the OR and operative time, and then also created low, medium, high risk categories that uh, had a high level of accuracy. So what are some of the things we could potentially do with this information? Well, one of the, one of the challenges is, is that even though you can prognosticate different patients, you wanna use that information to uh, make meaningful clinical decisions. What we found, um, one thing I wanted to highlight was that the preoperative sodium levels, these would have been completely missed if we were using any kind of traditional statistical methodology. However, this machine learning method found that as an important factor. And certainly there needs to be a little more work as to figuring out why that is that a low preoperative sodium or abnormal preoperative sodium results in um, higher risk of readmission. Potentially, it could result in a lower um, uh, you know, uh, reserve for patients of postoperability if they're developing hyponatremia. Perhaps they just don't have room to uh, fall further before they get readmitted. But nonetheless, the, the machine learning process did help to pro, you know, identify different factors that could be important. And then certainly, if, as more information is learned and we have additional uh, ways of refining the methodology, we can certainly add those factors back. So some, some of the um, strengths of the study were that we could identify which one of these uh, preoperative factors were important. But One of the limitations and several limitations was that this is very, our external data set is limited to just two institutions, we certainly need to refine the model. Many of the variables such as return of the OR are are kind of things that use a surgeon don't necessarily have control over. So we really need to better define factors that we can control so that we can help our patients out. And the next few steps with this project really are to apply uh, machine learning towards prospective data. And we can talk a little bit about some of the multi-center prospective registries we're doing with um, pituitary adenoma patients. And hopefully that can be a way of better identifying high-risk patients.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for that thorough summary. Um, Let's kick off the discussion with our guest faculty. Uh, Dr. Roper, did you have a few questions?
3: Yes, thank you. uh, And thanks for that wonderful presentation on a a really interesting paper. Um, A few things, and I don't know if I'm it makes me a good or bad person to go over this paper, but I know nothing about machine learning as I assume that's probably a a lot of clinicians are in the same uh, ballpark. So to me, I was just treating, I'm treating it basically like as this magic tool and I'm just trying to figure out what does this tool do? What are its strengths? What are its weaknesses? Uh, And then, you know, and eager to learn more of the specifics. But a few of the things, you know, did occur to me in, in uh, trying to kind of put this into perspective and, you know, where, where does it take us? The, my first question is, is um, the machine learning techniques clearly are really powerful. I mean, they showed things that I, I, I'm convinced they, they, they showed things that you couldn't have found by at least any alternative method that I'm aware of. And that's why it seems like magic. Uh, So they identified, not it's more than three, but the three of the principal variables uh, that that were touched on uh, uh, by Dr. Carsey um, that were predictive for readmission. Uh, But at least from my level of understanding, it didn't provide much information on what caused the increased risk or how to mitigate the risk, which is as a clinician that's kind of what i'm looking for so my first question since i'm relatively uh, or completely naive to this uh, type of analysis so is this kind of typical of machine based learning techniques or is it just a particular feature based on what what happened to you know what we happened to find with this particular uh, particular analysis i mean uh, in a broader scope i guess the the advantage of one of the advantages of these machine learning techniques is you can just put these huge vats of data and they're not hypothesis driven which is a, just another way of saying they're not biased going in so it's an unbiased approach which is wonderful but the way i think about unbiased pro- approaches is you know you you do the unbiased approach and it allows you then to develop hypotheses that can then be tested by other methods So uh, that's a way too long way to ask this question. (laughs) Uh, Is that, is it a general feature of these machine learning techniques or it's just, this is what this one happened to find and that's just how it is? That's my question.
2: Yeah, this is Brennan Krabs speaking. That's an excellent question, Dr. Roper. Thanks for uh, uh, stating that. Uh, machine learning algorithms are purely a statistical technique. They're excellent at identifying patterns due to their ability to model non-linear, non-linear relationships as well as account for interactions between input variables. However, as you mentioned, they often struggle to kind of interpret those patterns. Once key features or patterns are identified, I do believe it is up to us as physicians to really provide that context and determine why those features are particularly important. Uh, This particular study was not necessarily designed to interrogate individual features such as preoperative sodium. Uh, We entered into this study with the hypothesis that we could accurately predict readmissions using available features in the NISQIP dataset. Uh, We determined that this was indeed possible and further used a permutation analysis to determine which features the machine learning models we're utilizing to make their predictions. Now that we know which features are important, we can ask specific clinical questions and design experiments around those clinical questions to provide additional pathophysiological insights. You know, I really liked how you pointed out that machine learning is not necessarily hypothesis driven. I do think, um, particularly in the field of machine learning. And in the context of medicine, we still need to be doing hypothesis driven research. We need to start with a specific clinical question and then use um, whatever is the best tool to answer that clinical question. Um, for this particular prediction, it happened to be machine learning.
3: Okay, great. So, uh, so just to, to follow up on that, I guess a little bit. So let's say now that we've got this, you know, next step, Let's say you came up with a hypothesis regarding preoperative sodium levels. Would, would the next way of testing a hypothesis would it would it involve a different type of machine learning? Or have you then moved out of the realm, you know, of machine learning and more traditional statistical analysis? Or is, is the answer maybe yes, all of the above? I think
1: it's a great uh, question, Dr. Roper. I, I think I can answer to the clinical side of that. and maybe Brendan can talk about sort of the algorithm. One thing that this sort of helped highlight for us was the importance of sodium. Um, probably as you and many other pituitary surgeons already know, seems to be an important factor for readmission rate. And, and very recently um, in, the, in our field, there have been a lot of discussion about post-operative fluid restriction protocols for patients, um, ERAS protocols for skull base and cranial patients and using fluid restriction perioperatively as a way to reduce readmission rates. So already you can kind of see some of that surgical intuition coming in um, to, to try to intervene in a way to prevent this problem from happening. We recently uh, published a, a meta-analysis of different studies showing that the fluid restriction protocol had reduced the risk of readmission, I think by, by about five times from whatever data we, are, we is available. So it certainly works. It certainly needs more knowledge and more investigation to see if it works but i think the machine learning algorithms these sort of database studies help as you said create the hypothesis that that needs further study really to understand totally agree with you
3: so uh that i guess that leads to kind of my next uh, uh, general question which you've already alluded to it's the you know the what i found completely counterintuitive finding that Preoperative sodium value was, I, I think it was the strongest. Anyway, it was one of the three strongest determinants. I just, I just kind of blew my mind. Uh, I mean, I've always in in a preliminary question, uh, reading through your papers and I, and what we've been discussing. I mean, I think we're all kind of working on the assumption that uh, delayed hyponatremia is. Uh, probably the principal reason for readmission, and that's certainly my, I mean, I got, it's a, certainly my experience. Uh, was there anything in the your analysis that said that, or that's that's just taking what we already knew and applying it to this finding? That, so that's kind of a preliminary question.
1: So it's a great uh, question. Basically, when you uh, statistically looked at the sodium levels of patients who were readmitted versus not readmitted uh, across these different sets of data, it did not jump out that there was a, um, hype, you know, patients had hyponatremia when they were specifically in the read Yeah,
3: the mains were, I mean, they were all just-
1: They were kind of the same.
3: Tiny differences, and they were all what I would call normal, I mean.
1: Right, right, that's exactly what we saw, that we would have completely missed that as an important factor. I mean, surgical, surgical intuition suggests that's the main reason, but um, the database, the, the data that we have available wouldn't, yeah not I
3: mean, you were looking just at readmission for any reason. Yeah. okay okay, well, yeah, so and yes, I mean, I, I would love to I don't have any I don't have any great uh, hypotheses about how to explain that, but uh, there's got to be something, I think probably really interesting there, right? Um, okay,. Um, Another question that I had uh, is, again, these are kind of following a uh, kind of a logical flow, I guess. Uh, you know, I my I always figured to just assume that uh, if there was, I mean, the thing that's aggravating is about these delayed post-op hypokalemias is I don't seem to be able to predict, predict them very well. Uh, hence the reason for your study in the first place, I guess. Uh, but I always assumed if there was anything just, you know, sitting around thinking about it, it you know, it, I would think that uh, these people that kind of fluctuate a lot and you can't figure out if they're trying to go on DI the and then they go, and they may stay a couple of extra days. I thought that that would be the group that you might be able to identify um, as, you know, being at increased risk for a week later, coming back with hypolytrainia. Uh, and I don't know that much about the NISQIP database. Is there, are are there features within that database that might identify people like that? Or are there, I mean, surrogate measures, I guess length of stay would be a surrogate measure because those people always end up staying a couple extra days, it seems like. But uh, I just, you know, is, is any granular data with respect to that question present in this clip, or that's just not the question you ask from this clip data?
2: That's an excellent question. Um, one feature that is available and was actually determined to be less important is the post-operative labs. So we did have both pre-operative and post-operative labs to start this study. Okay. Um, an initial analysis determined that the pre-operative were were more important. Um, And I do like how you said that length of stay could be a surrogate, absolutely could be a surrogate for fluctuation as you you mentioned as those patients are going to stay longer. Uh, The other thing I would like to highlight is um, the fourth most important feature that we actually found was BUN. We also have creatinine in here as well. So perhaps the sodium values only become important in the context of underlying renal function. Um, I think the ability to account for these different interactions between these variables that aren't necessarily um, immediately obvious to us as humans is one of the main benefits of using a machine learning technique on this particular data set.
3: You know, that's really interesting because, you know, these guys come back and, you know, we automatically say, oh, they're in mild SIADH. Maybe these people just have some impaired kidney function that uh, <laughs> predisposes them to to, to any perturbation that, that in, an, in another person might not. Might anyway, interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. That, to me it is at least. Um, uh, then uh, these are kind of obvious. Um, as, as Dr. Carsey mentioned, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm sure a, a big determinant of, of whether you have to readmit a patient for delayed hyponatremia in part depends on how you deal with sodium management, both in the perioperative period, and also in the early discharge post-operative period. And I'm guessing that most centers vary a lot in terms of their protocols. And if it's at my center, we can have a protocol, but how well it's adhered to is is a challenge. So, um, I mean, I'm sure, do you have any kind of, I mean, presumably somebody who's, you know, checking out patient sodiums regularly and calling the patient and say, hey, you're, you know, you're down a little bit, go ahead and start fluid restraining is probably going to have less readmissions than a center who's not doing that. And, you know, you find out when you get something two weeks later, when they show up to a locally are not feeling good. Uh, do you have any feel for that between your two test uh, institutions? uh, uh were there, were there big differences? I mean, there were pretty big differences in re, readmission rates between the two centers,
1: it looked like to me. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point and And, um, you know, I did speak with the Ohio State group in preparation for this podcast, and, and there's heterogeneity in our center with our different surgeons, as well as in Ohio State. Everyone's doing something different, unfortunately. I think there's some general sense of post-operative sodium checks, cortisol checks, one-week checks. Certainly at the University of Utah, we do post-operative checks for sodium and um, specific gravity, and then we check it a week out. Um, There's variability in in sort of the endocrinology follow-up for different centers as well, whether a lot of these checks are being done by neurosurgeons or endocrinology. I think you definitely highlight a really important real-world issue is that there's variation in protocols from place to place, and we really don't have... Um, the best practice sort of say I think we have the practice that works for each center that they've developed over time
3: well you know so i and I think you guys mentioned your paper but you know you 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 mentioned an earlier paper where you showed that how you manage these things can actually affect readmission rates maybe an immediate effect of this current paper is now that you know you you could have you could have these high-risk patients identified by the time of discharge and maybe they go on to a Maybe more resource-intensive, uh, but more structured or rigorous postoperative management protocol. Uh, whereas maybe a low-risk uh, uh, patient doesn't need that. So that, like I guess that would be you know that that could be an immediate effect of a paper loss. Uh, and then another related question was just thinking about it. You know, uh, when people are. Uh, you, uh, well, on their cortisol replacement, uh, I mean, uh, that can result in hyponatremia. Again, differences in how you send out people on replacement cortisol or not replacement, what the dose is, that seems like that could have another impact. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that sort of data is not actually in the, the database
1: we certainly don't have cortisol levels or medications in the NISQIP database. And yeah. then for each of the um, external sites, again, huge amount of variation in kind of um, who's using perioperative dexamethasone or hydrocortisone and then yeah. um, who's not. So there, there's a lot of controversy, unfortunately still on how to manage this simply because we, we don't have um, uniform protocols and everyone has different experience and the data just isn't there to tell you this is the best practice or not yet. I think the next steps with a lot of these um, studies is prospective registry type of data. And so one of the things I can sort of mention to, to you and the listeners is that you know currently there is a group called RAPID, which is a multi-center um, consortium of uh, about a dozen different academic centers trying to create a pituitary adenoma registry and um, that's well underway at this point and that's going to try to give you some of the prospective data that you're um you're you're bringing up and asking such good questions and a registry is really going to be the way that you can kind of focus in with many centers on a specific question gather the data that you need to answer it and then actually make a meaningful answer so i i think there's there's still learn there's still room to learn um,
3: you know, just uh, in before we leave this particular topic about variation between centers, I thought one of the really, you know, positive and probably you know powerful findings of this is even though the, the two test centers did differ pretty significantly between like readmission rates, the uh, the this uh, this uh, protocol seemed to work equal, equally well. For both centers. So I thought that was interesting. You know, you would think, well, somebody with a high readmission rate, it would be easier to see it than somebody who's got a baseline low, but it, it, it seemed to, to work, uh, uh, you can correct me, but it seemed to seemed to work equally well, even though the centers were, were, were different in terms of the re-operation rates. I thought that was pretty interesting.
2: Now, that's an excellent point, Dr. Roper. Um, you know, and I would like to highlight validation is going to be critically important for these machine learning techniques and not just validation in some arbitrary number of institutions, but local validation prior to implementation. Uh, you know, that is one of the limitations of this study is that those two institutions likely do not um, represent the entirety of the patient population across the United States or, or even the world. Um, so, when we do develop these, and we see differences between institutions, it's gonna be critically important to validate it every time before applying it to to real-world patients.
0: Um, If I may, I think this kind of goes off of of that prior point, Um, but you alluded to this earlier with the um, talking about uh, prospective data collection for machine learning that, that you might be undertaking at some point. I, like Dr. Ober mentioned, entirely unfamiliar with machine learning and and its analysis. But can you talk very briefly about what the difference between a prospective study might be and the outcomes and how it can be utilized? Um, To me, machine learning seems to imply that the analysis changes as more data comes in, and the analysis is kind of done throughout the process, and maybe the inputs or outputs change throughout that analysis process. So does that change what, what input goes in during the prospective trial or, um, can you just talk briefly on, on what that means to the, to the results?
2: Sure. Absolutely. Thank you for the question, Dr. Still, you know, retrospectively in the data set that we used for this project, uh, you know, we have patients going back almost a decade, um, practice is gonna change in that time, the patient population might change in that time. And so one of the challenges for with prospective studies is that the data set is gonna potentially undergo um, some kind of variation as we move forward into the future. And so retrospective techniques you know, were great, we can establish a proof of concept, establish a baseline, but we don't know necessarily if applying these in a prospective fashion is necessarily gonna be A, as accurate, or B, um, really significantly improve patient care. Uh, so one of the important things about applying this prospectively is, as well is that it's another validation that this is working and we didn't just fit um, the data from the past decade. Um, it still applies today. Um, and then two, that it's actually going to impact um, patient outcomes as well. Uh, we don't want it to just become another step or another cost that doesn't necessarily improve outcomes.
1: I think I, to add one point to Brendan saying, the, the one thing that prospective data collection also is better at is that you can get a more homogeneous set of data. With, with retrospective data, especially administrative databases, research databases, they're, re, they're relegated to who's coding the data, uh, making sure that you have the right diagnoses. A lot of variables could be could be missing. So there's, there's serious limitations to any kind of retrospective administrative database. And if and we're going to base a model we're going to use to treat patients, certainly validation helps to make sure the model is accurate. But we're missing still tons of important variables for patients what kind of surgery was done what was the size of the tumor you know did this tumor invade the cavernous sinus or was it attached to the pituitary stalk there's so many important factors for predicting um, you know patient outcome and that's where i think prospective data collection is going to be better um, with machine learning i i think there especially you know me learning more about this over time You know, it's thought of as some sort of magic algorithm that can just develop some sort of, um, you know, p-value that tells you exactly what's going on. It really is just a tool. And more important than the tool is the the data that's going to be used to create the algorithm, the, the clinical question, and a lot of the surgical experience needed to know that there are all these nuances that exist that are important for Creating the, the right algorithm, including the right variables in it. So one thing I've, I'd love to just let your listeners know, you know, machine learning is definitely not anything to be afraid of. It is not anything uh, more magical than what we already do with surgeons, which is help identify patients that are high risk, low risk, and make this decisions. It is just a tool, and the best way to use that tool is to understand its strengths and limitations. and And I'm you know, I'm excited to to hear about the CNS, for example, doing a um, a seminar on data analytics and machine learning just to, to teach surgeons, how, how do you do this? What are, what are the um, limitations? How do you get involved with this kind of research? So I can already see that from an organized neurosurgery perspective, this is an exciting thing that's here to stay and that the different uh, societies are putting a lot of effort to try to make sure that we um, as surgeons really are invested in it and, and drive a lot of the clinical decision-making based off of these tools.
0: Yeah, awesome, that'll be really great to see going forward, how we can utilize these, these new tools and hopefully get a lot more data um, than the typical kind of traditional statistical methods we're all familiar with. Um, I think that's about our time for today. Uh, that was a fantastic discussion and we really appreciate everybody joining us. Um, everybody can look out for the full version of this article coming out in the August publication of JNS. Of And for all of our listeners, please continue to follow up with us as every month we'll continue to do um, our CNS Journal Club podcast. Um, As a reminder, this podcast offers 1.5 CME through the CNS website, complimentary to all CNS members. So we encourage you to check it out there. Um, Thanks again to everybody and we'll see you next month.